0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 61st episode of our podcast, I interviewed Dennis Mortensen, CEO and founder of x.ai in New York City. Dennis is a serial entrepreneur who has helped start a number of companies over the course of his career with multiple exits. We talk in detail about these companies, and we also discuss the successes and lessons learned from all of them. X.ai is Dennis' latest startup, which is solving a problem that happens 10 billion times a year. That is scheduling meetings. It is that ritual that we all know so well with the highly inefficient back and forth over email. As it turns out, it is a very complex problem to solve, and X.AI is finally providing a solution with its comprehensive AI powered scheduling technology. The company is venture backed, and they have raised $44 million to date. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Dennis's background growing up in Denmark with a family of entrepreneurs, and how this gave him sales stamina and led him down the path of entrepreneurship all about his prior companies, including visual revenue, index tools, and others, the details behind x.ai and the complexity of their technology, why he likes to hire people who are quote-unquote comfortable in the dark, his perspectives on whether entrepreneurship can be a career plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, 2019 is right around the corner and it's likely that you are thinking about your hiring plans for next year, and based on how competitive the market is, you're probably wondering, how are you going to make those critical hires? Well, I have some great news for you. VentureFizz can definitely help. Our biz pages are an employment branding solution, which helps you engage with a highly targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry across all job functions. Our platform is used by over 250 companies, from early stage startups to publicly traded tech giants. Send an email to premium at VentureFizz.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Dennis. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks much for having me. Well, congratulations on the new launch for X.ai. I saw there was a lot of publicity around it and uh, you know, lots of going on with the company, which we're going to get into at length. But I did want to start going way back. Where, where did you grow up?
1: So the funny accent is from Denmark, and I spent my first 27 years in the cold north of Europe, and thereafter spent some time in Trinidad, Tobago, lived in England, lived in Budapest, and ended up in the U.S. about 10 years ago.
0: Wow. And, well, and what did your parents do for work like when you were growing up?
1: So here's the funny story. And uh, you and me could spend the whole day kind of talking about what makes an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. but both my... Mom and dad and uncles, cousins, and just the whole family in general were entrepreneurs. Not in the kind of traditional New York tech VC-backed entrepreneur, but in the uh, 1970s, three people get together, let's see if we can make some money to kind of pay the mortgage type of entrepreneur. But I've certainly seen my dad work mandatory six days a week, get home at 10, get a little bit to eat, fall asleep in front of the telly. And I immediately knew, you know what? I don't think that's for me. So I'm just going to take my CS degree, go work for IBM, get home at four, and be happy. That's not how it played out. But that was certainly my game plan uh, as I started out. So uh, certainly my whole family is a family of entrepreneurs.
0: And and that's why I asked that question. Not that it matters per se, but... I, I, you know, just myself, my my dad was an entrepreneur and same thing. He got home late. He was building a leather coat factory, right? So he wasn't a tech entrepreneur. He was, you know, building something that's exceptionally hard. But uh, I always think that foundation tells a lot about what, how someone's brought up. And now, obviously you did get into entrepreneurship and you've started lots of companies. So how did, how did you get involved so early on in your career? And And I'll answer that, but you're absolutely right. And
1: if you have kids, I have two kids uh, myself, Mm -hmm. we can have grand plans for what we want them to be. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly uh, something you should aspire to as any good parent. But really, if we are honest, our kids are gonna be small replicas of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So if you don't like yourself, you know what? You're not gonna like your kids. If you do think you're a half-decent person, you're probably going to get half-decent kids as well. That's great. I, advice yeah,
0: like that.
1: <laughs> I, I think it's just the truth, really. I remember when I had my first kid 18-plus years ago, so my daughter just went to college, which is crazy uh-huh. when I say it out loud. Mm-hmm. But I remember that first set of weeks and months for where I tried to be something that I was not, and it was just tiresome. As in, come the end of it, I thought, I can't keep up this lie for 18 years. So Dennis, you're going to do one of two things. Forget about the lie. and Just kind of change the things you don't like about yourself. So uh, turn up on time and all of those kind of little things where you think you're not you know, the best possible person. So that's certainly super funny. And I think the one thing uh, my dad, not by design, kind of suddenly taught me of uh, the few skills I have, um, the one thing, because he was in kind of um, sales, he had a uh, uh, selling kind of fruit door-to-door type of company. And if you sell fruit door-to-door, that's kind of cold calling if you think about it. Yeah. And if you knock, that is hardcore. Mm-hmm. And I did that from uh, 11 years and up. And if you do kind of, a thousand calls a year, and you do that 10 years straight before you get to college, Mm -hmm. you build up some kind of sales stamina, which is where most kind of people in sales kind of die, for where it's not that they don't have the skill or the kind of charisma to do sales. It's that I can't take the nose. I die on the nose slowly. But if you grew up with nose, then uh, that's just all part of the process. Mm -hmm. So that's a long story just for me to kind of agree with you that we do pick things up from uh, from our parents. Now, to answer your question, though, how did I get started? So the plan was hand on heart. One for where I've put it in place in such a way for where I at least thought it was perfect. I did game development in college to kind of fund my. St- studies, and remember, I'm from Scandinavia, so we're paid to go to school. So it's not like I had any debt, but kind of just a a little bit of beer money, a little bit of money for a new bike, and so on and so forth. And the way you pay most students is really on delivery, because they're kind of half flaky, right? And I've been working on this last title for a year and a half, together with some of my mates, and then the company went belly up. And I remember being just so pissed because the plan was one, I deliver, I get my degree, I pay off the few dollars in debt I have, I have a few dollars in my pocket, I take my bicycle, I ride out to IBM, I say, hello, where's my desk, and let's do this. Right. And that, that that was really the grand plan, but then as they kind of went belly up, I had my counsel, which sounds very grand for somebody in college, but certainly uh, the person two two degrees away from me, which I could call my counsel to call up and buy the software off of the uh, estate and the folks who kind of ran the company. And back then, lawyers didn't really know much about software, so I bought two CDs, when they wanted to kind of sell me chairs and cars and monitors and leases and what have you, were next to nothing. And then um, since we were almost done, I sold the whole thing three weeks later and I made what I thought was a small fortune. In hindsight, not really, but thought it was a small fortune. But even with that winning, I wasn't entirely convinced that uh, I should be an entrepreneur, but I thought, you know what, let me take all I have, put it on red, kind of just re-roll uh, it one more time, i lose it as quickly as I can, and then I go out to IBM. Mm-hmm. And what I did was I did a kind of log file analytics type company in the mid-90s for where any website in this day and age will have some form of analytics put in place. You can't run any website without having some type of insight. But that was certainly not as obvious in the mid-90s for where most websites kind of came about. So we built that June 1st, '96, And uh, instead of going uh, belly up and quickly head out to IBM, we ran it uh, for four years, bootstrapped it, where about 70 people and had a good exit in April of 2000. So I'm one of those kids who got out on the right side of the dot-com boom. And I wish I could tell you that I've seen the future and uh, I know exactly how that's going to play out. No, it just felt like a good day and we took it. So that was kind of how I ended up being an entrepreneur. And then I had a little bit more money in my pocket and I thought, you know what? Let's roll the dice one more time. And I've done that now for... 24 years yeah
0: 24 and
1: years. on my fifth venture now and spent about five years on each venture
0: and and each one um i'm sure you learned a lot right so the second company um it, it, it didn't work out right it was you know on your linkedin it says it, we went bust a rather expensive mba so what what would that company do and, and what happened so before it was
1: Immediately obvious that you and me would uh, order our takeaway on the internet, say Seamless or Grubhub, or you and I would uh, book a table at some restaurant using Open Table or something similar. We did that in Europe before Seamless Web. And the idea was obviously really good because those guys are killing it, but we were too early. Too early, yeah. And you and I, I think, know very well that it's not often that you die on the idea. You die many times either on timing or founders not being able to really get along or some other set of variables in kind of third, fourth, and fifth kind of uh, priority, but rarely on the idea of being so poor that's, that couldn't survive in market. So uh, great idea, a little bit too early, but we l- leaned into it and uh, even had exit opportunities, which we didn't take, and still kind of uh, thought we were going to get to the other side. Didn't get there. It's a good story, though.
0: You, you got you to learn from, from failure, right? Yeah. And then, so and then, eventually, you did make it to uh, New York City and started another company, Visual Revenue. Um, so, how did you meet your co-founder there, and what, what was that company all about? Because it eventually was acquired by Outbrain. So, I can rewind just one venture back, mm-hmm.
1: and I moved to Budapest, where we did what you and me would know as Google Analytics today. So the whole idea of tracking a website through a JavaScript and pixel, which was not uh, as obvious back in the early 2000s, and built that up. Uh, Again, we kind of bootstrapped it. And one of my partners back in Budapest was Charlie. So when we sold that company to Yahoo, one of the acquisition terms was actually that he moved to Los Angeles, and that I moved to New York. And I thought, sure, mm-hmm. I'll move anywhere. Uh, if you say uh, some random destination in China, I'll go. Uh, there was a good exit, uh, so uh, I'll spend a couple of years there. But the thing about New York is it's very uh, easy to fall in love once you arrive here. And uh, in that, we did a good integration. And once we fully integrated our kind of technology into Yahoo, Charlie and I kind of uh, started to kind of brainstorm on the next thing. And that's how we uh, kind of branched out and did yet another venture. And we had a new kind of co-founder in that venture as well, which was uh, Alex, who then got carried over into X.AI. And you've heard this a thousand times before, for where if you are so lucky that you can carry over a few of your co-founders from one venture to another, you have massively de-risked it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why I was trying to connect the dots of your companies and who was involved through multiple iterations. So um, finding a a co-founder is hard enough, never mind someone that you can start multiple companies with. It is
1: super hard because like any other thing, if you start something as stressful as a company, it is not out of ill will that you kind of end up disagreeing. It's just because of the unfair amount of stress and the unfair amount of decisions that you need to take and the fact that the answers aren't immediately obvious. So you will make a set of guesses for where it is really on us to kind of figure out whether your guess is better or worse than my guess, but it can't be both of them. So we're going to have to take one of them. So I fully kind of, appreciate the kind of friction that comes along. But if somehow you can overcome that friction, you're going to just accept the fact that we're not always going to be in agreement, but we're always going to be trying to reach the same destination. So if we can just kind of shake hands on that and kind of keep moving forward. And once we kind of disagree and we pick a kind of decision, then we commit to it, whether it's my call or your call. So that is perhaps based on a little bit of luck, but then again, If you do enough ventures over enough or over a long enough period of time, hopefully you do stumble into a good set of co-founders for where they kind of have uh, the same mentality and you kind of get to know each other and get to kind of either persuade them of why your decision is the slightly more robust one or you being more willing to kind of surrender your position and just kind of lean
0: into their viewpoint. And what did Visual Revenue do? Like, What was the, the foundation of the product offering? So we did
1: predictive analytics
0: for media.
1: So say you go to cnn.com and you look at their homepage. They will, at this very moment, promote about 150-some-odd stories. There'll be a big-ass story in the hero spot, and there'll be some stories that are really just a link in kind of their sports section further down the page. But it's still a homepage for where some editors needs to decide what 150 stories are we promoting. And if you take CNN as an example, which was one of our customers, but it could have been uh, Fox or ABC or The Guardian or Time or People magazine, all folks that we kind of work with, how do they decide what stories to carry where and for how long? And so you would say, um, some of them might just be completely automatic. The latest ten stories. That seems a little bit weak, but sure. Sometimes it might just be the editor who kind of suggests today I want this particular story to be on the agenda. Sure, but for how long? Mm -hmm. And once you kill it, what other story? And what we found was many times this would be kind of based on. I'm not saying this to be a. Rue, but kind of gut feel and Diet Coke yeah, totally and less on uh, data? Mm-hmm. And what we thought was we could provide some backdrop for where we shouldn't take over the kinda, editorial direction of the publication, but we could certainly provide a better kind of decision framework. So knowing exactly how that homepage looked like, you could think of it really as a marketplace for where every story needs to kind of fight for its position. And we provided that uh, that setting for the editors, and they set up recommendation algorithms for what stories that they might carry instead. And then they could take a more leave so decision support. And it worked very well and ran it for 1,059 days from start to end.
0: <laughs> There's then, the
1: data geek in me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then, obviously, the acquisition by Outbrain, which um, yeah, I'm sure why you're transitioning everything in, in terms of that process. At, at what point did you decide, okay, we're going to do this all over again, start another company?
1: There's perhaps two schools of thought in regards to entrepreneurship in general. I'm sure there's really an infinite amount of new points, but there's certainly the idea that a startup is something that you do if you stumble into some idea for where you simply can't live without you trying to solve it. Mm -hmm. It is some sort of calling. And if you go read books like uh, Cirrus One and similar, they suggest that it must be a calling. That Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship cannot be a career. And suggesting that entrepreneurship is a career is stupid. So that's one school of thought. It's not one I necessarily believe in. I'm not saying it's wrong, but that is one line of thinking. The other one is that perhaps Entrepreneurship could be a career, as in, wow. it's probably as much a career as, say, a VC. It's just that a VC can allow himself or herself to invest in parallel. So you have a $100 million fund, you invest in 20-some art companies over four years, and then you see how they play out you kind of expect most of them to uh, not work out and then some to kind of go sideways and a few winners, Mm -hmm. the typical kind of distribution. But that's really just the very same thing, just you standing on the sideline. But why would I not try to do the same type of portfolio then as an entrepreneur? I just can't do them in parallel. I have to do them in serial. That means I'm not running the four-year fund. I'm running the 50-year fund. And I need to do 10 ventures over 50 years. And if that is the case, then I probably increase the probability of one of them could be a winner. And I'm just so fortunate that I've had, you know, a few winners early on in my career, but I still kind of encourage people to kind of think of it as a 50-year fund or a lifetime of entrepreneurship. And that is the other school of thought. So... When did we start to think about it? It was not something for where do we have the energy to do this again? Because shit, that was hard. Mm-hmm. And I need to exhale and just sit here with my diaco and look out the window and think about nothing for weeks on end. And I get it. But for me, suddenly, it was really not uh, a decision. It was just a matter of timing. Mm-hmm. When do I think I've done? Good to the company who acquired us, as in they paid us a good sum of money and put some trust in us in having this technology fully integrated. And when can I walk away and say, I think uh, what you bought from me was uh, of good value and uh, it can now exist in its own right. And we spent a year and a half on integrating it, doubled the user base and did good on on that end. I certainly also expect them because I was very vocal about the fact that I was a lifelong entrepreneur that I will make sure you are happy. We just need to figure out how we measure that happiness. That can be set up in a set of KPIs, but I'm on a kind of journey that's much, much longer.
0: Well, let's talk about your current journey. So, x.ai, uh, you're solving a problem that happens 10 billion times a year. So, what is that? So, you and me whether we like it or not,
1: come into the office or sit at a we work or work remotely and then we do meetings. Some people do a ton of meetings if you're in sales or marketing. Some do a few meetings, say you're in engineering, but we all do meetings. As in, you cannot be a knowledge worker in this day and age without being called for a meeting. Right. And we might just sit here and have a laugh and say, yeah, I fucking hate meetings, then you know, go work somewhere else. Meetings in and of themselves are not bad. Some of them are potentially bad, but me meeting up with the, my product manager, that's two hours on the whiteboard that are well spent. Now, given we know these meetings happen, and as you kind of said, about 10 billion plus formal meetings are being set up in the U.S. alone every year. How do we set them up? really in two ways. If you're meeting up with anybody externally, we do the uh, email ping pong. You shoot me an email saying, hey, Dennis, I'm going to be in Manhattan in December. Do you got time to meet up for a diet I reply back, sure. When are you here? You say December 4th forward. I say, can you do Wednesday at one? You say, no, I'm having this other meeting. And back and forth we go, right? And it's not that it's difficult. It's just another chore in my inbox. Mm-hmm. And then there's the internal meeting for where, oh, I need to get you, me, Suzanne, and Ilya together to kind of discuss this new daily agenda that we're gonna work on. And one of us has to kind of take on the pain of looking at the shared calendar and mm-hmm. try to kind of sell one of us to kind of move some kind of conflict, and then it gets in the calendar. So this we all know and recognize. So what we built or certainly spent the last four years in that basement trying to build, is this intelligent agent that can really remove this as a chore. So when you email me for this very meeting that we're having right now, this very podcast, I can simply reply back and say, you know what? That sounds awesome. I have CC in Amy. Mm-hmm. She can help put something on my calendar for the week of October 15th for an hour. Send archive. Archive, because it's not my job anymore. It's Amy andor Andrew, our two agents' job, and then they will reach out to you and say, hey, do you have time that Tuesday, that Wednesday, for these hours? And you can have this very human like back and forth with the agent. Of course, at the very same time, we do provide a lot of the kind of UI elements as well for those who are not fully converted to the conversational UI and they can click in and find a time on some kind of web page if that's what they prefer. But it's the whole idea of removing scheduling as a chore. And at some point, I've had my email since, what, 91? So that means I'm now short of 30 years into doing this chore, right? As in, that's all I've done. You and me can't imagine in Ten years from now, that we still do the same thing, somebody must come along and remove this. I said that can't be our future. So that's what we're trying to solve.
0: We schedule meetings, and we do it for a ton of people. And I, I think the experience is a lot more personal. And it just—I don't know, like, like there's all these different calendar options. Like, oh, book a meeting with me, and you go to the person's website and or their page, and you like select a meeting, and then it's all kind of automated from there. But you're like. All right, now you're making me go book the meeting and look at my calendar, and it's kind of one sided. Whereas uh, with x.ai, it was just like more personalized and efficient, and it just made me feel better that this was still interfacing with somebody and that this, you know, we're getting this done easier, yet it's not just resting on me now. Which <laughs> is exactly the kind of feeling that we're
1: shooting for, mm-hmm. for where there's certainly some kind of
0: almost power play. Power play. Exactly. You just feel kind of like, okay, (laughs) I guess I got to look at the calendar.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's not uh, super kosher for everybody. Uh, might be slightly more socially accepted today versus yesterday, but I'm certainly hoping for us to be able to ride a slightly more kind of uh, comfortable position for where you feel catered to as a guest. But here's what I'm really shooting for. Now I'm going all into sales mode, so you can delete this (laughs) if you want to. But really what I'm shooting for here is that when I shoot that email saying, hey, do you know what? Amy can find some time for us next week uh, at 200 Broadway. What you should say in the perfect scenario is, ah, awesome. Andrew on my end can hash it out with Amy because you have your own assistant. Right. But what if Andrew is Amy? Right. Who the hell is she talking to? <laughs> She's talking to herself because right. you and I have the same assistant. Right. And that makes for instant scheduling. That means as you see C and Andrew, then you close your eyes and you open them and we're meeting up next Wednesday at 2.30 in meeting room 9F down on 200 Broadway. And that type of scheduling Nirvana, that is kind of what I'm kind of running towards. Right. That is obviously... Uh, Awesome when we kind of get enough of a network to kind of see that happen. We see it happen every single day, and obviously, we see it happen all the time from those companies who buy it for all of or most of their employees. Because then you can do things internally like, uh, hey, uh, Amy, can you get me and the product design team together for 30 minutes this afternoon? Return, okay, 420, meeting room 3E. Great.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, it just simplifies such a basic fundamental setting up a meeting, but such a labor intensive task. Uh, So my background being, you know, ran my own search firm for 15 years. Like that was always like the labor intensive time suck of just scheduling meetings or scheduling interviews. And um, to automate that process is just like time saving and game changing, (laughs) like it was just such a problem. And I don't think you and me could
1: really come up with a good argument for why that is where you provide the most values. If you right. ran a search firm, mm-hmm. your value is in any other place but figuring out that you're supposed to meet with somebody next Tuesday. It is in the initial screening. Mm-hmm. It is in all the kind of steps you have in your process, but the one for you try to figure out what time to talk to them. I said, that's the least of the value you provide. If
0: anything, that's just a complete waste of your talents. Yeah, it's absolutely and now how did you actually come up with the names Amy and Andrew because they actually have their own little like personas on LinkedIn even so, I'm sure you figured out
1: that uh, You have a set of geeks down on 200 Broadway and (laughs) It's Amy Ingram and Andrew Ingram. So their initials are
0: AI Ah, I didn't pick up on that got it
1: and you'll actually see that if you use say gmail iphone app it'll pick the first two initials and you see that as you kind of scroll through it and that's kind of funny Mm haha if you're an even order like me geek you will have picked up on the fact that their surname ends on engrams which is kind of a text analysis methodology and i'm sure most people don't pick up on it but that's kind of what's baked into their surname Mm -hmm. and then there is the fact that we wanted them to be super short so when you do sit and fiddle with your phone on the subway or on the go it should be just fast to write so there you have it and then obviously there's one of each gender
0: which i think is equally important for all sorts of obvious reasons Mm -hmm. and let's talk about the the complexity of the technology like we're talking about a task that is time-consuming um, you know, it requires a lot of back and forth. So, what was the complexity of building out the technology for the actual AI and the automation?
1: Again, and perhaps I'm just one of those people who are very eager to kind of put things into buckets. But there's certainly two types of startups. There's the startup which comes out of some weekend hackathon or. Three months in Palo Alto in some incubator, and there's nothing wrong with that. As in, out of why company you see Airbnb or out of any one of those settings, with little kind of true R and D comes a fantastic idea, and good for them. Perhaps there's a little bit of uh, lottery in it. And I have tons of respect for those who kind of see kind of the right ticket and then kind of build on top of it. And then you have a set of ventures for where there's no kind of experimentation you can do on your way there. There's no kind of almost self-driving car. It is either self-driving or it is not. Those are the only two modes. Do you drive the car? Or do I drive the car? And that I need to know before I kind of look away. And we just happen to be one of those technologies for where either Amy schedules the meeting or she does not. There's no kind of points for, oh, you did really good in the dialogue, but then you stumble here and the meeting didn't get scheduled. I still give you kind of a nine out of 10. No, I give you a zero out of 10 because the meeting is now not on my calendar. So you are basically useless. And that is kind of something we knew up front that this would be a kind of deep tech or kind of endeavor where we would have to spend years on end before we could even have something that could be commercialized. And that obviously makes it not more difficult, but certainly uh, compress both the people which you can hire for, the investors which you can... Seem to kind of team up with for where not everybody's got the appetite to sit for years on end without kind of knowing whether you can get to the other side. It's kind of like uh, you and me signing up to kind of swim the English Channel and uh, you can't see the other side and this is England and France is on the other side and we're probably not going to make it so we'll drown but hey if we train we might make it. This was kind of the same thing and uh, we're able to assemble a team of uh, Good scientists and good engineers and patient investors that could see that if you can solve it, however big the risk, there might be some real interesting kind of rewards on the other side. But it's an interesting kind of observation, trying to figure out whether you're one or the other thing. And if you're really deep tech, how much lust is there from you, your team, your investors and your surroundings to participate in that? and perhaps this have turned into a therapy session for dennis um, <laughs> but it is it was really hard to do that for that long before we could commercialize it
0: and what is the current size of the company in terms of employees or customers or so the team is
1: short of 60 people in downtown manhattan And about 70 people in Manila that does all our data labeling. And the amount of customers is not public, but kind of to give you some scale, we're setting up hundreds of thousands of meetings. But even as I say that, and that sounds like, oh, okay, that's a lot of meetings. It sure is. But if you divide that by 10 billion, Mm -hmm. that suggests I haven't really penetrated the market at all. Or really... Any one of the vendors in market haven't really penetrated the market at all. This is by far still a task put on the individual. So it's completely kind of open for us to kind of go attack. There's plenty of acquisition work for us to do in the years to come.
0: And we're at the very beginning of that. Well, I guess if your technology and vision rings true in terms of adoption, like, uh, so I have two, two girls, one that is in high school and the other one in middle school that when they're in their professional world, they'll be like, you used to like have to schedule your own meetings. That's so weird. <laughs> There's a whole set of things for where you and I
1: did some chore yep. and then I explained it to my daughters and I can see that. I have to kind of even invest into the explanation. It's not even just a good story. because they don't even get what I'm trying to say. No, I, I did do this one particular thing. <laughs> I actually do think at some point, so I, I tell me that you then wrote little love letters back and forth on when you could meet. I said, that sounds like crazy talk. Why, why would you do that? <laughs> and yeah, you're right. And just like, you can take another thing. Most people actually don't remember that there was a time for where we didn't have shared calendars inside the organization. Mm-hmm. That's actually an, an invention in my lifetime, but it's mm-hmm. now so normal that if you worked in a company for you couldn't see anybody's calendar, that would seem broken. Like, so how, so how do I see when people are free? Uh, you walk over to their desk.
0: Get out of here. <laughs> that, that can't be right. Right, they had their calendar on their desk in paper. Yeah, you know. yeah.
1: <laughs> Which, you know, we, we laugh because we, that's crazy. So, but it happened in my lifetime. I'm only 46. Mm -hmm.
0: And what about the AI landscape? So when you started X.AI in 2014, you know, it wasn't, uh, you didn't have VC firms that focused in their thesis was AI investing. So how's the landscape evolved since you started the company? So we were certainly very early. And that's, as
1: we just discussed a few minutes ago, kind of dangerous. But it seemed right, and that is where the entrepreneurial mindset just cope better with risk for where you might not have enough proofs to really suggest that I now know with high certainty that it is time to lean into the idea of AI. It felt right though. We did do a whole host of kind of tests on both the conversational UI the type of data we could collect and how that would work from December is 2013 all the way up to April, 2014 for where we kind of put the band back together and set up shop proper. But it was not immediately obvious. And there was really not any of the firms that we spoke to for where AI was part of their vocabulary. Not that they haven't heard of it. They are technologists just like us and, uh, AI has been around for, you know, more than half a century, but it wasn't really part of the vocabulary. It came around very quickly, though, perhaps even within the first year, the first inklings of, Hey, this could be real as an industry, as a real kind of vertical worth attacking. And uh, it became suddenly never easy, but certainly easier to kind of put perhaps our A and B round together because we were part of some existing ways that uh, were happening kind of just
0: in front of us. I assume you're still growing. Like are are you hiring in different functions in the company? Yep. So if you're a awesome engineer, uh, you should uh, go look at our website. If you are
1: a awesome growth hacker, like really senior and you want to lead a team, actually spend personally time I'm trying to kind of hire for that position as we speak. So if you signed up 100,000 people in some other setting with a ton of good ideas, you must email dennis at human.x.ai immediately.
0: <laughs> and when you are hiring, how do you evaluate talent, especially in you know, an emerging area of technology where there's not a lot of people that maybe have deep skill sets? Like how do you actually evaluate talent?
1: That's a good question, and you are certainly the expert here, but I can uh, provide some some amateur input on uh, what we are trying to do. So early on, we accepted the fact that this would be a long journey for where the destination would be not immediately visible. And I wrote a kind of half-page pledge, which mostly just tried to describe how I was looking for people who would be comfortable in the dark. And you can have a laugh now, as in, Dennis, I call bullshit. You writing little poems at night, giving out to potential candidates about how they should be comfortable in the dark, that sounds not right. As in, you should seek help. But it worked quite well. As in, we ended up finding people where, no, I am comfortable in the dark. I'm actually, Okay, being able to see only a few steps ahead, doing those steps, because I think if I do them, then that might expose a few other steps on the board. And then I'll take those steps, except for the fact that some days I might actually have to go back along the same path to go out another avenue. Mm-hmm. And that little kind of uh, pledge, what is this online? You can go read it if you want. It's on x.ai
0: slash pledge. That became a kind of hiring mechanism. And I did read a, a post that you had on uh, on Medium on how to hire for your startup, and you, know, you had a nice little correlation with Shackleton and, and everything he went through and how he recruited for his team.
1: Very much so. That is obviously the most aggressive advert you can put in the paper. And if people haven't read it, you should go search it on Google right, right. after you kind of finish this podcast. But certainly his version is kind of similar to what I put in place mine just used words like be comfortable in the dark his version suggested that you might not come back alive right. and uh,
0: <laughs> you should probably find some stories <laughs> like they're just like horrible but people signed up <laughs> yeah uh, but they still signed up for the glory
1: right as in if you do come back what you come back with is a story that not many other people's people will be able to kind of replicate or even suggest that they have also done. And I think we're a little bit in the same setting, or I wish any startup would try to figure out, how can we, given that the most likely outcome is that we won't succeed and we'll die along the way, at least make sure that we come out on the other side with a set of stories so strong or so good that when I get to the end, and I sit here and look at my grandkids, I can say, you know what? We had a lot of fun. Let me tell you a story because that completely kind of blew up in our heads, but it was a good story. Nevertheless,
0: that's awesome. Well, here's rooting for that to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, Dennis, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing all your background and your successes, your lessons learned and, uh, you know, all the, all the great things that you've gone through.